Welcome to the Veritas Mizzou podcast. Veritas is the college ministry of The Crossing, a church in Columbia, Missouri. Our greatest hope is to see more and more college students believe that Jesus is more. To get connected, check out our weekly meeting on Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. on Mizzou's campus. For specific details about where we meet, how to join a small group, or more information about Veritas, visit us online at veritasmizzou.com. To stay in the loop with what we're up to, follow Veritas Mizzou on Facebook and Instagram. We hope you're encouraged by this message. In uh, 1945, near the end of World War II, Japanese forces uh, were overrun on the small Philippine island of Lubang. And in the ensuing chaos, a Japanese uh, intelligence officer, here's a photo of him, I think, right there in the middle, uh, Hiro Onada, uh, he fled to the jungle. He fled to the jungle with orders from his commanding officer to hide and continue engaging in guerrilla warfare until Japanese forces were able to return to rescue him and his troops. Now, as it turns out, Onada was good at hiding, too good, in fact, because seven months later, when World War II ended, Hiro Onada had no idea. He was still in the jungle. He was still hiding. He was surveying military facilities on the island and occasionally clashing with local residents. See, Hiro Onada believed that World War II was still going on. And it didn't happen just for seven months. No, it It happened for 29 years. For 29 years, Hiro Onada was on that island, in that jungle, hiding and fighting as if World War II was still going on. It wasn't until 1974 when a tourist happened to find him, uh, tried to convince him the war was in fact over, didn't believe him, so he flew in Japanese military officials to actually convince him that World War II was over. It's a crazy story, you should read more about it, but the reason I tell you is that that it illustrates, I think, an important point, and that's this. What we believe about the world, what we believe about our world, it has a significant impact on how we live. What we believe shapes how we live. And so, for example, if we believe that certain foods aren't good, what do we do? We abstain. If we believe that the, the earth is worth taking care of, what do we do? We, we pick up trash and we recycle and we're resourceful. See, what we believe about the world shapes how we live. And of course the same is true with God, right? What we believe about God, it, it shapes how we live, what we do, what we say, how we think, what we care about, where we find meaning and purpose and identity. An author once said it like this. He said, what comes to our minds when we think about God, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What you and I believe about God is important. Now, I know from talking with a lot of you that that there are some here tonight that you don't know what you believe about God. Others of you are actually really confident in what you believe about God. Many of you are somewhere in between, and and wherever you're at, I'm glad that you're here, because right now we're a few weeks into a sermon series where we've been answering the questions that you asked, 
answering the questions that you asked. And tonight, the question, the third most popular question that you asked and voted on is this. What makes Christianity, what makes Christianity more true than other religions? What makes Christianity more true than other religions? Now, maybe that's not your particular question, but I can assure you that, that it's for sure one of the questions that your peers are asking. It's for sure one of the questions that your friends, your family, your coworkers, your classmates, maybe even your professors, it's for sure one of the questions that they're asking in one way or another. Why Christianity and not some other religion? Now, aren't all religions essentially the same? I mean, does it really matter if we choose one religion over the other? If someone asks you those questions, what would you say? Maybe someone has asked you those questions. How have you answered? I was talking to a guy last week on campus, uh, kind of a random conversation. I just happened to meet him, and we started talking about religion and God. And, and, and as those conversations go, I, I started to ask what he believed, and he told me he believed in ABC, not the ABCs. Uh, he clarified and said, no, Allah, Buddha, and Christ, ABC. I said, huh. And then I asked him, I said, why all three? And, and we started talking about that. Why, why all three? And he said, well, you know, I, I get it that, that sure, there's some weirdos out there, crazy cults, that sort of thing, but, but the major world religions... The major world religions, he said, Buddhism, Islam, Christianity, Judaism, Hinduism, he said they're all basically the same. Sure, they have their differences here and there, but really if you strip them down, if you get to the heart of each of them, what they teach, they all kind of point to the same God, don't they? Maybe you've heard that before. People, people when, when that comment or, or that idea is talked about, what, what people tend to do is they, they talk about a mountain. They use an illustration. Maybe you've heard it, right? It's this idea that, that God is sitting on top of a mountain. And, and different religions, it's said, are, are just different ways up the mountain, different paths to get to God. Some of those paths, they wind back and forth. Others are more direct. Some are smooth. Some are rocky. Of course there are different paths, but they all lead to the same place. They lead to the top of the mountain where God is. It's kind of a nice idea. I mean, it's, it's, it's a fine picture, I suppose, but, but there's a problem with that illustration. There's a problem with it because according to the major world religions, who's sitting on top of the mountain? Who's sitting on top of the mountain? Muslims say Allah. Jews say Yahweh. Buddhists actually say no one because there's no such thing as a personal God. And, and besides, that's not even really the point. The point is to reach a state of nirvana. Hindus say thousands of gods and goddesses are awaiting us at the top. Christians, of course, say Jesus. And so even if they somehow appear similar on the surface, I, I want us to see that major world religions, they, they have a fundamentally different answer to the primary question. Who's sitting at the top of that mountain? I saw a picture earlier. It's not a great picture, but I, I think you'll get the point. Um, it's a picture of two groups of pills, right? They're basically the same, pretty similar. One of those groups of pills is Tylenol. The other is potassium cyanide. Potassium cyanide is a substance that was used in suicide pills for agents that went behind enemy lines in World War II. See, on the surface, those groups of pills, they look pretty similar, but in reality, they couldn't be further from 
the same thing at all. One brings healing. One brings life. One brings relief. The other brings death. See, those differences really matter. Now, religions might appear the same on the surface. They might appear similar, but they aren't the same at all. They don't point to the same God. They don't teach the same things. They don't claim to be about the same thing. They're different, and those differences really matter. Now, when I was saying this to, to, this, uh, to our ABC friend, that's what I'll call him, um, he said, okay, fine. I'll grant that there are differences, and, and we can maybe even agree that those differences aren't, aren't insignificant, they're, they're important. But he said something else. He says, okay, that's fine, but, but don't all religions just have part of the truth? Don't all religions just have a part of the truth? Maybe you've heard that. Maybe, maybe that idea is, has been said to you. Maybe it's your idea. Maybe you've also heard this. There's a, there's a parable from an ancient Hindu text. Uh, and, and it says to envision this. You've probably heard this story. It says, envision a group of blind men walking along, along, right? And they happen to stumble upon an elephant. And this elephant lets them touch it. And so these guys, they, the, these blind guys, they start touching the elephant. The first grabs its trunk and says, it's like a snake. Second guy says, no, 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 no. it's not like a snake. He's, he's holding its leg. He says, it's big and it's round. It's like a, it's like a tree trunk. Another of the blind guys pushes on the elephant's side. He says, no, it's massive. It's flat. It's like a wall. Third, or the other guy, another guy grabs the tail says, no, 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 no. It's, it's like a rope. And on and on. You get the point, right? Each blind man could only feel part of the elephant. And because of that, no, no one person could see the full picture. No, no, uh, none of them could see the entire elephant. And so in the same way, it's said that different religions each have part of the truth, but none can have a comprehensive hold. None has an entire grasp on all truth. None of them, no religion, has all truth. And so we can believe in Allah, we can believe in Buddha, we can believe in Christ or whatever because they all have something to learn. Each has part of the truth. Each has something that we can take. Pick and choose what we want, leave what we don't, be an ABC believer. But the problem the ironic thing about that Hindu parable is that it's told, if you think about it, it's told from the perspective of someone that actually sees the entire picture. It's told from the perspective of someone that sees what all of the blind men are doing. It's from the perspective of seeing that actually each of these blind men has a limited perspective. It's told from the perspective of someone that can see the whole truth. Someone who in fact has the entire truth. And of course, Christians believe that that someone is Jesus Christ. That someone is Jesus Christ. Look at with me with the or look at look with me. Words are hard. At the Gospel of John, chapter fourteen, Jesus is talking to one of his friends, one of his buddies, a guy named Thomas. And Thomas says this to him in verse five: "Lord Jesus, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way, Jesus?" And Jesus says to him, pay attention, he says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What we believe about God is important. See, religions, they've long taught about truth. 
Buddha said that, that truth is ultimately hidden from us. Muhammad said that, that he was one that pointed to the truth. But, but Jesus comes along, and, and Jesus teaches something radically different. Jesus says, I am the truth. Not a way, the way. Not part of the truth, all of the truth. Not just a pointer to life. I'm life itself. I'm the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. It's a hard teaching. And I get that, that it's offensive, particularly in our culture. Maybe it offends you. I, it, honestly, it used to offend me. Because it's one thing to claim that, that Christianity is true for me, but it, but it doesn't really have to be true for you. And it's an altogether different claim. It's a completely different claim to say that Jesus rightly demands the allegiance of every human being, not just some. It's a completely different claim to say that Jesus rightly demands allegiance from every human being, not just some. Now, if we say this, if we say that Jesus isn't just a way, but the way, that Jesus isn't part of the truth, but the truth, that Jesus is the only God at the top of the mountain, that in Jesus is where life is found, well, that's gonna put us at odds with our culture. It's gonna put us at odds with them. And so then we start to hear things like, well, well, Christians are narrow-minded, Christians are exclusive, Christians are bigoted and arrogant, and, and it's just absurd that you could possibly believe that Jesus is the only way to God, which of course is right, unless it's true. Maybe we can think about it like this. Think about a maze, right? Is it narrow-minded? Is it narrow-minded to say that there's only one way to get through a maze? Is it narrow-minded to say that? I mean, mazes have lots of paths, lots of paths. But we all know, because we all know about mazes, that, that all of the paths except for one path leads to a dead end. Only one path gets through. Now, is it narrow-minded, or is it exclusive, or is it bigoted, or is it arrogant, or is it absurd to say that those paths don't really work? Well, of course not. Of course it's not. Different way of thinking about it. Imagine for a second that you're a doctor. And you're sitting across the table from a patient. And this patient has cancer. And you know that this patient's going to die unless they get treatment. But, you know, the patient's listening and says, yeah, I'm not really buying that. I don't really think it's a big deal. I don't really think that there's much of a risk. Is it arrogant of you as the doctor? Is it offensive of you as the doctor? Is it exclusive and bigoted and whatever word you want to say for you to tell that patient otherwise, for you to try and persuade that patient otherwise? Well, of course not. Of course not. See, the Bible teaches, the Bible teaches that every single human being has been infected by something called sin. And it also teaches that Jesus is the doctor, that he's the way, the only way, the, the path through the maze, so to speak, to healing, that Jesus is the only way to wholeness, Jesus is the only way to life as God intends. But going back to the original question, right, well, how do we know that it's true? Sure, Jesus makes that claim. Sure, Jesus says that. But how do we know it's true? I'll be honest, I've gone back and forth a million times over the last two weeks trying to figure out how to answer that question because there's so many things to say, but I settled on this. We know that Christianity is true because of historical 
and experiential evidence. We can be sure that Christianity is more true because of historical and experiential evidence. See, unlike philosophical, abstract, vision-oriented religions, there's, there's actually an immense amount of historical evidence to support the claims of Christianity. I mean, literally so many things that we can talk about. We're gonna, we're gonna talk about just one. Uh, uh, just the, the claim of the resurrection, right? The question, did Jesus physically raise from the dead? Christians say yes. Muslims say no because Jesus never died. Jews and atheists and agnostics, for that matter, say no because Jesus died and stayed dead. And of course, we could also ask, does it really even matter? I mean, does the answer to that question, did Jesus really raise from the dead, does that even matter? Look at what Paul, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, two verses, 14 and 17. Paul says this about Jesus' resurrection. He says, if Christ has not been raised... Our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. And he goes on to say that that if the resurrection is a lie, if it never really happened, then, then just pity us that believe that it actually did. Mock us, make fun of us, say whatever you want about us, because we're silly to believe that Jesus rose when he actually didn't. Everything the Bible says about Jesus is wrong. Our belief in him is useless. But, Paul says, verse 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. See, this claim that Jesus rose from the dead, this this is something that for 2,000 years, Christians all over the world have believed as the central claim of Christianity. That Jesus died, we sung about this earlier, Jesus died, he was buried, And on the third day, he rose from the grave. 2,000 years, though, why? Like, why are we believing that? Why do, is it, is it blind faith? Do we just kind of say, okay, yeah, whatever, that's just what I'm supposed to believe? Are we naive? No, we believe it because we have credible historical evidence. Like what? Three things, I'm just gonna summarize three things. We've talked about them before, but I just wanna summarize them because I think they're important. First thing is this. First bit of evidence is the simple fact that Jesus' tomb was actually empty. Now, why is that important? Why is it important that Jesus' tomb was actually empty? Because without an empty tomb, Christianity doesn't explode. Without an empty tomb, Christianity doesn't become something that unquestionably changes the trajectory of the entire world. It unquestionably changes the trajectory of humanity, of human history as we know it. See, if Jesus' body, if if it could have been recovered, if if it could have been displayed, then it absolutely would have because the Jesus movement, Jesus and his followers and this movement around him, it threatened the power of the religious leaders of the day. And so a lot was at stake with this empty tomb. If these leaders could have just shown the body, if these leaders could have just put Jesus' dead body out in front of everyone to see, the movement's over, everybody can go home. But they couldn't do it. They couldn't do it because the tomb was empty. And the question is, why? Why was the tomb empty? Why was Jesus' tomb empty? Which leads us to the second bit of credible 
uh, uh, evidence, and it's this, eyewitness testimony. Eyewitness testimony. Look at 1 Corinthians 15 again, uh, starting in verse 3. This is Paul. This is what he's saying. He says, For I, Paul, delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas. Cephas is Peter. Then to the 12 disciples. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. So in other words, Paul, 20-ish years after Jesus' death, Paul says, writes down in a public document for people to see and hear that there are hundreds of people, there are hundreds of people that have seen the risen Jesus. There are hundreds of people that have interacted with Jesus after he rose from the grave. But he doesn't just say that. He says, even more, there are people that are still alive. In other words, go and ask them yourself. Investigate, ask questions, see what these people say. See, that's important because it, it lets us know that people in the first century cared as much about eyewitness, eyewitness testimony as we do here in the 21st. They cared about eyewitness testimony, and Paul said, go check it out for yourself because they're still alive. Ask them. Talk to them about it. See what they say. Third bit of evidence, the disciples' lives. Disciples' lives. See, after Jesus died, the Gospels tell us that that his friends, his followers, they were afraid. They were scared. They didn't know what was going to happen. Their, their, their leader, Jesus, just died. And so what do they do? They run. They scatter. But here's what's interesting. Shortly after, something changes. You see, despite being poor, despite being few in number, despite having no power or cultural persuasion or sway whatsoever, they all of a sudden develop a confidence They develop a fearlessness that enables them to spread the message that Jesus had been teaching, the message of the gospel, far and wide in the face of opposition. It wasn't easy. Some of them actually died spreading that message. Now the question is, what changed them? What changed them? Why were the disciples who initially were so afraid, what what has changed so that now they're suddenly willing to die Why would they be willing to die if they knew that the resurrection was a lie? See, people die for things that they believe to be true, even even if they turn out to be false. That happens all the time. But who dies for something that they know isn't true? Who chooses to die for something that they know isn't true? No one. No one dies for a lie knowing it. See, in spite... of of what many people say, the most plausible explanation, I realize it's controversial. I, I know a lot of smart people would disagree, but the most plausible explanation for the empty tomb is that Jesus actually physically rose from the grave. And because of that, Jesus is God. Jesus is God. See, my point in saying all this is that there is an immense amount of verifiable testable evidence to validate the claims of Christianity. 
And that's important because when you're talking to your friends, when you're talking to your coworkers, when you're talking to your family members, when you're talking to your professors that disagree, you can be confident, you don't have to be a jerk, but you can be confident that there's good reason to intellectually conclude that Jesus is in fact who he says he is. He is the way and the truth and the life. Jesus is God. And so I said that, that we can know that Christianity is more true because of the historical evidence that we have, but we also have experiential evidence. What does that mean? It, that, that means that, that the story of the Bible, the story that the Bible teaches, the Bible tells, it makes the most sense out of the world that we live in. What's that story? What's the story of the Bible? It's a story of, of God creating the world and everything in it good. And uniquely tasking human beings with the responsibility of ruling and cultivating and partnering with God to to build a beautiful world. And so it's a a story of creation, but, but we also know from reading the story that it's a story of rebellion. Because God has a plan for the world, but humans reject that story. God has a plan for the world, but humans reject it in favor of their own. And when they do, sin enters into the story. It infiltrates Every person, every community, all of creation, because of sin, our world is broken. It's not the way that it's supposed to be. And that includes you and me. Now you hear that, but I think you also know that. You sense it. Experientially, we know that things aren't the way that they're supposed to be. Thankfully, rebellion isn't the end of the story. Because in the biblical story, God has a plan to fix the brokenness. God has a plan to rescue. God has a plan to redeem his people. How? By becoming flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, coming to dwell, coming to live, coming to be with his people. And he does so. And in spite of doing so, and in spite of being with his people, putting on flesh, what do his people do? They reject him. They kill him. But, but, As we already talked about, as we already saw, Jesus wouldn't stay dead, would he? On the third day, he rose from the grave. And in doing so, the Bible tells us that that Jesus triumphs over sin and death, that he promises one day to return, to, to restore us, to restore our world, to right every wrong, to dwell with us as his people once again for all eternity. And so it's this story, Jesus' story, that you and I, we find answers to, to the questions that we're all asking. Who am I? Who am I supposed to be spending my time with? What is the point or meaning of things? What should I do with my life? You see, Jesus' story is a story that makes the most sense out of our lives because it gives us a meaning. It gives us a purpose that pain and hardship and suffering that we all experience, it can't take it away. It gives us a confidence, a sense of satisfaction, a sense of contentment, not based on our circumstances, but on a God who enters into the brokenness, becomes broken himself so that you and I could be made whole. See, Jesus' story is a story that gives us lasting freedom. It's a story that gives you and me an identity, not based on success or career or race or achievements or social circles or a relationship, but instead it's based on someone who became so unlovely so that you and I could be loved perfectly by God. 
You see, Jesus' story gives us hope. Not a naive, wishful thinking, kind of hopeful optimism. No, it gives us a hope grounded in the one who eventually promises to come back to make everything sad in our world come untrue. Everything sad in our lives come untrue. See, Buddha, he claimed, he claimed with great zeal, he claimed with great, great clarity that he wasn't divine. He wasn't a God. Muhammad said he simply pointed to God. Jesus, though, Jesus repeatedly says, I'm not just a God, I'm the God. I'm not just a God, I'm the God. And I have the power and the authority to teach. I'm a God that has power and authority over sickness, power and authority over nature, power and authority over death, power and authority to forgive sin. Jesus says, I am the bread of life, the light of the world, the door of the sheep, the resurrection and the life, the good shepherd, the way and the truth and the life. I am the true vine. Jesus says, I am God. See, what we believe about God is really important. What we believe about God is important. There's a time in Jesus' life, he's talking to his friends. I love to read stories of Jesus talking to his friends because inevitably I, I see myself in their own confusion, their own doubt, their own questions. But Jesus is talking to his friends and, and, and you know, his ministry's been going on for a little bit at this point. And, and he asks them, he says, hey, what are people saying about me? Who do people say that I am? What are they saying? His friends kind of answer, you know, some Jesus, man, some say that you're John the Baptist. Jesus says, nah. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're Jeremiah. Some say you're some other prophet. And Jesus says, okay, 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 that's fine. And then I like to imagine that Jesus got laser focused. He says, okay, that's good, but, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? I was telling some of my friends this morning that I think that question that question is the most important question that you and I will ever answer. Who do we say that Jesus is? Who do you say that Jesus is? C.S. Lewis once famously said that, that Jesus is either a liar or he's a lunatic or he's Lord. Others have added legend. Liar, lunatic, Legend, Lord. Which is it? Who is Jesus? That's, that's a question we all have to answer. We all have to decide who Jesus is. Someone once said, uh, there are two ways to live life. Two ways that you can live life. You can live as if Jesus really is who he says he is. Or you can choose to not believe it. You can choose to live as if he isn't who he says he is. But, but be sure there's no in between because Jesus can't be and be, not be. He isn't and he is. He can't be both, right? He's one or the other. And so he goes on to make the point that, that it's better to bet your life on the fact that Jesus really is who he says he is because if he is, you have everything to gain and nothing to lose. You have everything to gain and nothing to lose. But if you live as if Jesus isn't, who he says he is, and you get to the end of your life and you find out that he is, you've got nothing to gain and everything to lose. You've got nothing to gain and everything to lose. 
Music team, come on back. I just want to end by, by asking a question. What is it that you're betting your life on? What is it that you're betting your life on? What story are you living in? What story are you living out of? See, that answer matters because, because catch this, if we get that question wrong, it doesn't really matter what else we get right. If we get the answer to that question wrong, it doesn't really matter what else we get right. See, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Will we believe him? Will we recognize who he is? Will we listen to him as our teacher? Will we acknowledge that that Jesus has complete control over everything in our lives? Over our world, sickness, pain, death. We see that Jesus is the only one with the power and the authority to forgive our sin. Will we live our lives for Jesus? Will we submit to him as our king? Or not? See, Jesus is inviting you. He's inviting me. He's inviting all of us. He's inviting us into a story. But it's a true story. And when you see yourself inside of that story, when you start to see yourself inside of Jesus' story, when you start to live inside of Jesus' story, albeit imperfectly, all for sure in process, when you start to live inside his story, your life will never be the same. It won't be the same. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Veritas Mizzou podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This helps other people find our content so that they can be encouraged too. Most importantly, to get connected to Veritas, check out our weekly meeting on Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. on Mizzou's campus. For specific details about where we meet, how to join a small group, or more information about Veritas, visit us online at veritasmizzou.com. To stay in the loop with what we're up to, follow Veritas Mizzou on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks again for listening.